Welcome to the Practical Neurology Podcast, the essential guide for neurologists. And today's discussion is two of a large choice of excellent case reports that we've selected from the latest edition of Practical Neurology. I'm Martin Turner. I'm a neurologist at the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford, and I'll be guiding the conversation with Ruth and Sinew, and I'll let them introduce themselves. Ruth. Hi, I'm Ruth Wood. I'm a neurology registrar currently on maternity leave. Hi, I'm Sinew. I'm a neurology registrar also in Oxford with Martin. Great. Well, thanks to both of you for joining us again. And uh, just a reminder before we present the two cases that we do have two podcasts linked to the latest edition of the journal already available, Editor's Highlights and also the Editor's Choice paper interview with our fabulous colleague Amy Ross Russell. So please subscribe on your favourite platform to get notified every time we publish a new podcast. So let's have the first case today. So Ruth, why don't you uh, kick us off with uh, your case? Uh, What have you got for us? This is a case of acute onset periorbital pain and it's brought to us by Lee et al. A group from New South Wales in Australia. And the history is that of a 69-year-old lady who presented to the emergency department in the evening with a sudden onset severe suprabulbar pain on the right side. We're also told she had a fronto-vertical headache and blurred vision. Okay. And it does say suprabulbar pain, doesn't it? What does that mean? Is that supraorbital? I was slightly thrown by this, actually. I wasn't sure myself. So I spoke to a friendly ophthalmology colleague and our conclusion was that it was pain above and behind the eye, but not within the eye itself. Uh, Okay. I see. Okay. So it's interesting, I think, Overall, in this case, we, we get a, an interesting perspective on our colleagues in, in ophthalmology who we interact with a lot, don't we, on call as neurologists. Um, and, and, you know, how we take histories is often a little bit different. And there will be terms that we'll equally use that uh, that sometimes we have to kind of explain to them. OK, well, it's a concern, isn't it? This uh, lady has arrived with a sudden onset difficulty with vision and pain. So uh, how did things progress from there? We're told she was otherwise well, and we're also given some important negatives. They tell us she had no eye pain, she couldn't see halos around lights, and there was no photophobia, fever, nausea or vomiting. And she had only a past medical history of asthma. Okay, and just for for my benefit, the the halos, how do halos kind of uh, help us? If someone has halos, what, what do we think of? My understanding of halos was there was some sort of process going on in the anterior chamber of the eye. So, for example, if the cornea was hazy, there might be a refractive error which would cause a halo to be visible around a light source when looking directly at it. I see. Okay, but I suppose this is very acute, isn't it? It's difficult to think of an acute corneal problem. But uh, anyway, useful to uh, to have that clarified. So what about the examination findings? The examination seemed quite limited, We're told it was essentially normal. We're also told there was mild maxillary sinus tenderness, although we're not told whether this was unilateral or bilateral. We're specifically told that the visual acuity wasn't assessed and there wasn't a dedicated ocular examination. It doesn't seem like there was much of a neurological examination either. Yeah, Sinew, what would you be looking for uh, in in a neurological examination of a case like this? What what would you be uh, focusing in on? Yes, so we have a 69-year-old with an acute onset severe headache 
which I will describe as around her right eye. And she also has some blurred vision. And I think differentials are quite broad at this point, but considering any sinister processes, I'd be worried about an inflammatory process such as giant cell arteritis, especially in someone of this age. So I would certainly want to check for any evidence of jaw claudication or temporal tenderness. Other things to think of, you know, acute onset headache, I'd want to check the character of how quickly it came about. A subarachnoid hemorrhage could possibly present in this way, as well as some sort of meningitic process, although she's quite systemically well for that. And I also think that the vision is, is quite important to assess properly, as it could give us a clue as to what's going on. I mean, certainly if there is some sort of retinal artery occlusion, um, it could be suggestive of, of an arteritic process or some dissection. Um, whether there's a third nerve palsy, um, it could point you towards perhaps a vascular sort of PCOM aneurysm. Um, and as Ruth said, it could be a problem with the anterior chamber of the eye as well to present acutely with headache, although I'm not so familiar with those presentations. Okay. I mean, I think the thing that I, I, I'm noticing wasn't specified straight away was really the eye movements. You know, that, that would tell us a huge amount. And we're told there's no pain uh, in the eye itself, but um, they go on to do... Uh, quite a few investigations that have again very sort of typical for that setting of in ophthalmology. Um, just take us through those, Ruth. Yes, this patient had a CT scan of her head, um, which I thought was interesting given the lack of a neurological examination. She had a CT scan of her head, which was essentially normal, and a CT carotid angiogram. And they said that they did this to exclude a posterior communicating or internal carotid artery aneurysm. And so that, that imaging was all normal, although the CT head incidentally showed some maxillary sinus soft tissue opacity. Okay. Yeah, so I think the the CT uh, would also have picked up uh, something really unusual, perhaps like a carotidocavernous fistula. It's, it's, Sin, you just tell us what you might expect with with that sort of presentation. It's not quite right for that, but just tell us uh, some of the features that might support that diagnosis. So I think you typically get a slightly red congested eye. Um, there could be an element of proptosis as well. And I know certainly from a textbook perspective, they say we might get out our stethoscopes, which we all keep as neurologists, of course, and Absolutely. Um, listen for any <laughs> potential breweries. So looking for things like that. Yes, I'm. I, I'm sure you regularly listen over people's uh, heads with your stethoscope. At least I hope so. Um, so yes. Uh, so I think that was definitely something I was wondering about because they do get missed. Uh, we we do see them quite often with trauma and sudden deceleration, but they they definitely can occur spontaneously. And I and I think even though there's not proptosis here, uh, it would definitely be a consideration. So actually, they, the the carotid angiography would probably have seen that, uh, although it wasn't being done for that. CT scan of the head, yeah, it's shown some sinus thickening. Well, we sort of see that quite a lot, don't we, really? And and often in people who are just having a scan for research. So I don't know whether we can tie that in. We're not shown, uh, we're not told if it was just on that side, for example. So uh, yeah, well, Ruth, what, what happened then? Well, they made a diagnosis of sinusitis, I believe based on the findings on the CT scan of the head and also of the tenderness over the maxillary sinus. And they discharged the patient with oral antibiotics in the early hours of the morning. 
Okay. And uh, so she went home. And then uh, what happened next? So later that morning, her regular ophthalmologist arranged for her to have an urgent ENT assessment. We're not told why she has a regular ophthalmologist, but it turns out it's a good job that she did. The ENT uh, doctor who reviewed the CT scan reported that the findings were within normal limits. And her ophthalmologist then arranged an urgent in-person assessment with another ophthalmologist. And what were the key findings that, uh, that, that led them to make the diagnosis? So her ophthalmology assessment found that although her acuity was 6 over 9 in her left eye, it was only 6 over 60 in her right eye. Her right eye also appeared congested with a central corneal haze. Her right pupil was vertically oval and slightly dilated at 4 millimetres compared to 2 millimetres on the left. And the right pupil was also sluggish in its reaction to light. They measured the intraocular pressure in both eyes and it was 67 millimetres of mercury in the right eye and 15 in the left. And a normal pressure is between around 10 and 20 millimetres of mercury. And then finally, the ophthalmologist commented that the anterior chambers in both eyes were shallow bilaterally. And so the diagnosis they came to was? Uh, Right-sided acute angle closure crisis. Yeah, so acute angle glaucoma, as, as we, we tend to know it, don't we? And um, yeah, very clear cut, isn't it, on the pressures? Interestingly, I, they did report a corneal haze. So despite the lack of halos, and I, I, I learnt really there that uh, you can get quite a, a brisk, obviously, response in the cornea um, to this. Uh, so uh, that is a, an interesting finding. So how did they treat it? This is an ophthalmology emergency and the priority of treatment is to reduce the intraocular pressure. And the way they did this was using drugs um, and also a mechanical method. So the drugs they used included oral acetazolamide and then some topical eye drops. The eye drops they used were bromonidine, uh, which is an alpha-2 adrenergic agonist, bimatoprost, which is a prostaglandin analogue, and pilocarpine, uh, which is a myotic. And the purpose of all those medications is to either decrease the production of aqueous humour or increase its outflow. So it, they reduce the pressure in within the eye. The mechanical technique they used was called corneal indentation, which they describe as a rediscovered technique that was initially used in the 1970s and they've started using again in 2009. And that's a mechanical method whereby you apply pressure to the peripheral cornea for 30 seconds and then release it again using a blunt instrument with some topical anaesthesia. And this mechanically opens up the angle in the anterior chamber and allows the aqueous to, to drain more freely via the trabecular meshwork. Wow. And did that work uh, quickly? Yes. So these treatments had a rapid effect. They report that the intraocular pressure was normal within 20 minutes. And this is quite important because the corneal edema also resolved and that allowed them to assess the angle more thoroughly and also perform a laser peripheral iridotomy. And I looked this up and this is when they make a drainage hole in the periphery of the iris to allow aqueous humour to flow between the anterior and posterior chamber of the eye. And that reduces the pressure difference between the chambers and prevents the iris being pushed forwards 
and therefore allows the angle in the anterior chamber to open up. Right. And it and it says that they avoided uh, the topical timolol eye drops, didn't they, because of the asthma, which I suppose surprised me a little bit. I mean, I'm guided by uh, the experts, of course, but I'm surprised if uh, uh, topical timolol would have would have been a major concern for asthma, but we'll uh, obviously take that uh, their advice on that, and uh, it seems to be something to avoid. Well, look, I remember in the dim, dark days of medical school being told that um, that to beware the acute red eye in the evening uh, that presenting to A&E. And uh, I was recalling that I think there was something about in the evening in, in sort of low light settings that might provoke this. So, Sinyu, do you remember anything about that? Yes, I think the typical story certainly here in this country is someone who... Um, has a night out in the pub and there's bright light and they step out to go home and and it's dark outside and so their pupils dilate and that closes off effectively closes off the angle um, causing an acute closure crisis yeah and uh it's interesting isn't it i mean this was in uh, australia so it will be the reverse in terms of season but it'd be uh, interesting to to wonder whether uh, it's more common as the uh, as the nights get darker, actually, whether there's a sort of seasonal variation. But uh, anyway, maybe mm. that study's been done. Um, so, so this looks like it was definitively treated. What about the natural history of this, Ruth? I mean, is, is, is are they likely to have further events? Uh, how does it tend to play out? Yes. Yeah, so when they have a laser peripheral iridotomy, I actually read that um, in around a third of people. Uh, those holes can close up within six to 12 weeks of surgery. So although it is a definitive therapy, I think these patients do need long-term monitoring going forward. And actually, if they have uh, concurrent cataracts, cataract surgery is quite a good way of addressing the problem because they replace the human lens with an artificial lens that's thinner and more pliable, and that opens up the angle and is quite a cost-effective way of definitively treating the problem. I think when the problem is identified and treated promptly, people do really well. But if people are untreated, then they can have permanent visual loss and obviously the prognosis is quite poor. Yes. And the other thing I remembered was I think there's a risk factor for this, isn't there, if you've got a particularly short eyeball. Um, and I can never remember that. Would would that lead you to be long or short-sighted? I can never remember which. But isn't this more common in uh, in people who are whichever one it is? Yes, yeah, so acute closure glaucoma is more common in people who um, have hypermetropia, who are long-sighted. But open-angle glaucoma is more common in people who have a high myopia. OK, great. Well, really helpful reminder of something that we might well see uh, down in A&E, uh, the acute red eye. And uh, we've seen how the ophthalmologist's uh, process those cases and uh, the importance of catching up with them uh, quickly. Okay. Well, let's move on to the second case now. Thanks very much for that one, uh, Ruth. So, Sinyu, uh, tell us uh, what you have for us. Yeah, thanks very much. I've got a really fantastic case of a 45-year-old man who presented with leg pain and weakness. And again, similar to Ruth's case, we've omitted the actual title because it states the diagnosis. So to all our listeners, you know, please do go and uh, have a look at the case and title as well after you finish this. And where's this one from? 
So this is a case report by Belanti et al. Um, from the Nuffel Department of Clinical Neurosciences here at the University of Oxford. So home well, fields. Well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. So uh, tell us uh, how it presented. So we have a 45-year-old male who presented with a year's history of progressive pain and hyperesthesia in his lower limbs. Initially, this was described in the outer or lateral aspect of his left thigh and the medial side of his knee. There weren't any sphincter disturbances, no back pain or balance problems initially reported, no past medical or family history of notes. But the case progresses and he then develops right foot weakness over the next eight months. And examination was done at this point. There was a delay because of COVID and it identified absent right ankle jerks, reduced sensation to pinprick over the lateral aspect of both thighs and the medial side of the knees. Okay. Well, I mean, this was obviously uh, a, a difficult presentation at the start and it may have been fairly mild. And I think they make the point that there was an initial diagnosis of neuralgia parasthetica. I mean, Ruth, do you, do, do you think that that was reasonable at the start? It seems to me that that, that would have been compatible. Um, what, what were the sort of features that should then make you just think, oh, OK, I think there's a bit more going on? The patient had isolated sensory symptoms at the start before developing any motor symptoms. So it's not completely unreasonable. And the regions where the pain was experienced were the was the lateral um, aspect of the I think the left thigh, wasn't it? So I think it was a reasonable provisional diagnosis, with the caveat that they weren't actually able to examine the patient because it was a telemedicine consultation. The other thing I wondered about was they described sensory changes at the medial aspect of the knee, and I just wondered if you would get that with neuralgia parasthetica or not. Yeah, it's. I mean, I think it, it, it is a little bit low down. But you know what? I think of that initial presentation, I, I would have done a teleconference uh, diagnosis of neuralgia parasthetica and, and did do several times during the COVID pandemic. And obviously, we're dealing with something very rare here. And we should just, you know, remember that, that you know, in the real world, we have to sort of make a guess and then... Uh, um, and then we'll be alert to things that change that that move us in a different direction. And clearly, the development of right foot weakness um, uh, changed things. And quite rightly, then a flag was raised and further tests were done. So, Sinu, what uh, what was the investigation of this patient? So the initial investigations included a, a raised CK of three hundred and five, which is just over the normal limit. Lactate dehydrogenase was 258, which was slightly elevated. Just to remind me what that's used for, what do we use LDH for? I'm never quite sure uh, why we test that. Yeah, I think it's more of a general sort of inflammatory process, but also seen in certain cancers as well. Um, Is it a particularly good sensitivity and specificity in this setting? It's fairly non-specific. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, it, it, you know, it's useful to see that. But I, I think just to be sort of, I think, balanced about it, I think it's something that uh, at this stage and what we've been told so far wouldn't have allowed us a, a lot of rule in or rule out, really. The CK is interesting, isn't it? It's slightly raised. We see that a lot. It's in the sort of range where even just a sort of active person going to the gym could uh, could put up their CK to that sort of level. So it hasn't helped, um, but it's obviously ruled out something um, more muscle-focused. Um, and 
And what else was done? What was the sort of uh, breakthrough moment? Yeah, so they described a few more blood tests and IgM was uh, measured at 2.97, which is, again, just above uh, the normal re reference range. Um, but there was no paraprotein on serum electrophoresis. Uh, they did find a positive anti-GM1 antibody, which is potentially interesting. Um, and they did imaging of the lumbar sacral spine, which was normal. Yeah, I'll just come on to the the uh, the paraprotein. I mean, we've got something very unilateral here, haven't we? And I always think about symmetry is very important in neurology. And I always think with immune system processes, it's quite interesting that, that as you'd expect, a lot of immune things are very symmetrical, which is entirely what you'd expect because things in the blood don't respect left and right. Um, but there are some immune processes which are very focal, particularly things like multifocal motor neuropathy. And I think they tell us something different about the mechanism. And, and, and you know, the question is then why are they targeted to one particular nerve in one particular area? So, yeah, I, I think a paraprotein would have been difficult to have put together, actually, at this stage uh, with such a unilateral problem. Uh, not impossible in the early stages, but it would have been a bit unusual um, why it hadn't been more generalised. So tell us about the neurophysiology. So neurophysiology was done, which showed right leg abnormalities, including absent surals and reduced superficial perineal sensory nerve action potentials, so SNAPs. And as well as that, there was reduced compound muscle action potential CMAP amplitudes from both perineal and tibial innervated muscles. So this was the extensor digitorum brevis and the abductor hallucis. Sensory responses actually indicated a more post-ganglionic lesion uh, with both perineal and tibial abnormal responses, which could potentially localize to the sciatic nerve or the lumbar sacral plexus. Needle EMG was also done, and this identified fibrillation potential suggestive of active denervation and enlarged irregular muscle action potentials. Uh, and this is more indicative of a chronic denervation, and this was found in the right anterior tibialis and gastrocnemius with normal hamstrings and glutei. And so this pointed more towards a sciatic neuropathy. Okay, so Ruth, it, it, we've got symptoms and signs and investigations now uh, all focusing in really on uh, a single sort of uh, mononeuropathy really. Uh, sciatic neuropathy. Um, plexus hasn't been excluded, uh, but what sort of processes are you thinking about at this sort of stage? Well, thinking about an isolated sciatic nerve problem, I wondered about something like piriformis syndrome, for example, which I well, know... Tell can... us about that. <laughs> I thought that was something that uh, sort of over-keen middle-aged cyclists got, but no, tell us more. Well, I think that's when the muscle itself uh, spasms um, and causes pain, not quite in the right area, but buttock pain, and then it can irritate the sciatic nerve as it passes close by. But okay. I, I, I don't know whether that would produce the same electrophysiology findings, but just because of the sciatic nerve mononeuropathy, I thought pathology that's affecting that only that nerve. Yeah, no, that, that definitely rings a bell. I think we've got quite a lot of progressive involvement here so I think uh, that that uh, probably moves us on from that but no that that definitely rings a bell as um, as something that's considered in people more with sort of chronic pain without the, the motor signs okay and um, what other sort of processes well for a 
Plexopathy, I was thinking about inflammatory processes such as um, vasculitides, infections, things like VZV, HIV, Lyme, syphilis, all of those. And I suppose there could be a malignant infiltration of the nerve. So it could be a primary or all the plexus it could be a primary neoplastic problem or something paraneoplastic perhaps uh, and then things like diabetes although you'd probably expect more than one nerve to be involved but you could get a diabetic amyotrophy or a, affecting the plexus so the diabetic lumbosacral radiculoplexus neuropathy as that's now known uh but yes used to be known as diabetic amyotrophy it is typically a femoral sort of process and and the story is often a someone with type 2 diabetes and um, surprisingly it can be really quite a long time into the condition it's not not a sort of peri-diagnostic uh, event really and um, a lot of pain in the thigh and then rapid I mean really severe pain actually and then rapid wasting and it can be bilateral and it can also cause very chronic pain actually um, so I think you know diabetes always catches us out but I think it would be an unusual presentation to get a mononeuropathy in the sciatic nerve, but nothing's impossible. The infections, as you've laid out, uh, I agree, we'd have to consider. So they went on to do some imaging, and I think they also did a lumbar puncture as well. So what did we get from that, uh, Sinew? Yeah, so I think they were thinking on very similar lines to Ruth in the differentials. They got an MRI of the thigh, which showed diffuse thickening of the right sciatic nerve. And this was also confirmed on ultrasound. And so putting together both of these imaging appearances, it seemed consistent with an inflammatory neuropathy. I know there's a bit of art towards interpreting these images, um, but certainly our neuroradiologists are quite good using certain contrast sequences to try to pick out inflammation. They also did a CSF, which showed raised protein, 1.12 grams per liter with a normal cell count and no neoplastic cells were found. And they went on to do one more imaging, an FDG PET, uh, and this was described as unremarkable. Yeah, so... There's definitely thickening of the nerve, isn't it? I won't, uh, I won't get you to tell me what the causes of thickened peripheral nerves are unless you particularly wanted to go through those. But uh, it, they were obviously concerned about um, to think about uh, malignancy, but they looked in the CSF. Um, how did things progress from there? Yeah, so the history evolved in a rather focused way. During the next six months, the symptoms progress with worsening proximal weakness, but also erectile dysfunction and orthostatic hypotension, along with urinary disturbance and, in particular, urinary incontinence. Yeah, and at this at this stage, they uh, what what were they considering? So, with the new symptoms and this whole presentation, along with this inflammatory-looking neuropathy um, and autonomic features, this was highly suggestive of amyloidosis. So I guess the unusual thing is that it's still at this stage very unilateral, isn't it? And these sort of new autonomic features uh, have have come in very unexpectedly. I think they do mention that there's some repeat neurophysiology suggested that there might be some patchy changes in the left leg as well. But yes, we always think about um, amyloidosis with uh, the emergence of autonomic features, and it can be a cause of thickened uh, nerves. So... Yeah, how did they try and uh, pursue that and get that uh, diagnosis um, ruled in? So they went on to do a whole series of tests. So they repeated the nerve conduction studies 
and this showed progression of the previously seen abnormalities. There were features of a prolonged H reflex, which is the electrographic equivalent of an ankle jerk. There was reduced F-wave responses, and EMG showed additional acute on chronic neurogenic changes. Uh, and this time, the changes were suggestive of a patchy asymmetric bilateral lumbar sacral plexopathy, um, or potentially a polyneuropathy. So they re-imaged and they got MRR scans of the pelvis and lower limbs, which did show suggestion of bilateral lumbar sacral plexopathy with the enlarged right sciatic nerve fascicles that was sort of previously um, visualized, as well as S1 roots, femoral roots, and obturator roots. And these were enlarged bilaterally. They went on to do a repeat serum electrophoresis, which remained negative. However, they found a small IgM lambda paraprotein on immunofixation. And in trying to really hone in on an amyloid diagnosis, they did a SAP scan, so serum amyloid P scan, a DPD scan, which is a 3,3-diphosphono-1,2-propano-dicarboxylic acid scan, a fat aspirate, and a echocardiogram, and curiously, all of which were normal. They also did a transthyretin and next-generation sequencing amyloid panels, which were negative, um, and they managed to get a bone marrow aspirate and trephine, which did not show any evidence of plasma cell neoplasm or amyloid deposition. So a complete blank drawn on the amyloid. And, I mean, we may want to just discuss, really, this problem that we have when people want to search for amyloid. I've variably recommended to consider things like rectal biopsy, various scans that only seem to be available in single centres. Uh, and, and I've always been a little bit um, pessimistic, really, about the yield. And here's a, an example, really, of where the yield's been very low. Uh, and yet the clinical suspicion is high. So how did they make the diagnosis, uh, Sinyu? So as you said, the authors felt strongly about the amyloid hypothesis, no pun intended, and they proceeded with a right sciatic nerve biopsy. As you uh, mentioned, you know, getting tissue is really crucial to diagnose amyloid, and this is somewhat a risky site to biopsy, and so it was performed in a specialist hospital. And it's somewhat risky because it's a proximal nerve, and it can lead to issues around pain and morbidity. But in this case, I suppose they weighed up the risks versus the best chance of getting a diagnosis. And so this was a done and initially reported as an intraneural neurofibroma. However, on close neuropathological review, um, a lambda chain restricted plasma cell population was identified with extensive Congo red positive deposits and apple green birefringence. So this led to the diagnosis of amyloid light AL um, amyloid dosis uh, neuropathy. So, I mean, I think the biopsy, you know, obviously it, it was what made the diagnosis here, but but I think in a case like this, actually, even though it is a, a difficult site and does carry some morbidity, it was essential really, because I, I think a neoplastic cause for this was, was high on the list with that thickened nerve. You know, this is someone who's in a lot of pain, it's progressing, it's intractable. I've had a case like this, and and you know it, it was a direct inf infiltrative process. So, so I think the biopsy was key. But there's there's some unusual things, aren't there, with this biopsy? It's not really showing amyloid in the way we might think, and and we've got this plasma cell population instead. So just talk us through. Perhaps just start with 
what's the difference between AL and AA amyloid and what are we seeing here that's perhaps a bit more unusual? Yeah, so thinking broadly about amyloidosis, um, it's a protein misfolding disorder caused by extracellular deposits of amyloid in certain organs that can lead to dysfunction. And amyloid itself is a buildup of misfolded protein that is organized into these insoluble degradation-resistant fibrils. And so actually a number of proteins can form amyloid and misfolding of at least 15 can lead to a sort of systemic form of amyloidosis. And so systemic amyloidosis can really come from um, different proteins with different biochemical sort of properties. However, um, they tend to share some clinical features in terms of where the protein aggregates and which um, organ and how it affects this. It's a good point, actually. I mean, it, amyloidosis, really the initial classifications of that were very much in the peripheral realm. And obviously, most people know amyloid now as a generic term, really referring particularly in the context of Alzheimer's. But but you're right, the, you know, there's a, a long list of proteins which have this tendency, particularly in small fragments, uh, to form this beta-pleated sheet, which by definition produces this particular Congo red stain. And uh, yeah, and many of those are in the in the peripheral nervous system. So, so yes, just tell us about uh, what we mean by AA amyloidosis. Hmm. So the nomenclature for amyloidosis generally follows A for amyloid and then a letter denoting the underlying protein. So in terms of AA amyloidosis, this is known as a secondary form of the disease due to a chronic process, usually an infection or an inflammatory process. So commonly seen with conditions such as rheumatoid arthritis, familial Mediterranean fever, some form of chronic osteomyelitis. And the precursor protein in this situation is an acute phase protein, SAA, hence the term AA for the condition. And it usually begins in the kidney, leads to renal impairment, and that's very prominent, but it can also affect other organs. Whereas AL amyloidosis, A for amyloid and L for light chain this time, this is an acquired plasma cell disorder in which monoclonal immunoglobulin light chains are produced by plasma cells, which are created in the bone marrow, found in the plasma and the blood. And the amyloid fibrils are then made up of these light chains, usually at kappa or lambda, I believe. And these are seen with access production, usually with hematological dyscrasias, such as multiple myeloma, lymphoma, Waldenstrom's. And uh, typically, AL amyloidosis involves the kidneys, the GI tract, the heart, the liver, and the nervous system, um, which in this case was a particular particularly focused example of AL amyloidosis, um, which is one of the very interesting uh, features of the case, I thought. So Ruth, just thinking about uh, the, they talk about the immunofixation here. Just give us a reminder on why that might be important to particularly request um, beyond the normal serum protein electrophoresis. Immunofixation is very important uh, because it actually not just quantifies whether or not there's a paraprotein, but it actually tells you qualitatively what that protein is. So with serum protein electrophoresis, you can see if there's uh, what we call a, a monoclonal or an M spike, but it's not that sensitive. It won't pick up a very low level paraprotein. Immunofixation actually uses antibodies to identify the components within the M band. So in this case, they'll have used anti-lambda antibodies, which will have found that there was a lambda paraprotein. 
Yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you. No, I, I've definitely learned to uh, to specifically ask for that, um, in, particularly in these kind of cases where you're you're confident that there's there's something going on. So, Sinu, um, tell us uh, where the diagnosis uh, or the case went from there. Yep. So after the diagnosis of an AL amyloidosis was made, the clonal plasma cells in the nerve suggested a neoplastic cause. And so this gentleman was treated with rituximab and bendamustine over a six-month period. And this led to an improvement in the sensory disturbance and at least no further progression. So yeah, this so this isn't uh, so we're familiar, or certainly I've seen cases of of neurolymphomatosis where there's direct infiltration of the of the nerve by lymphoma. Interestingly, uh, top fact uh, that uh, Marek's disease is uh, a common neurolymphomatosis of chickens. Uh, it's uh, well recognised by uh, chicken farmers, but um, yeah, so that's in this case what we've got is the plasma cells producing uh, the light chain which is forming the amyloid. But I'm still not clear. What's your hypothesis around why it's just so so sort of uh, focal, really? What's the cause of that? Yeah, I'm not too certain, to be honest with you. And I think trying to read through the literature, this is really quite um, a fairly unique presentation. There haven't been that many other presentations of sort of this focal... Um, sort of mononeuropathy type presentation, at least to begin with, um, of an AL amyloidosis. But it certainly could explain some of the uh, findings in terms of the negative PET scan. You often find a more diffuse process which you can pick up um, and, uh, and all the other amyloid investigations are negative as well. Yeah. Uh, Ruth, did you want to add anything to uh, to this case? It's a really difficult diagnosis to have made and a really nice sequence of investigations and tenacity really to get to the right the right conclusion and then give the right treatment are we told anything about how the patient uh, did um, in terms of improvement i think at the end of the case they said he actually did quite well with some improvement in his motor and sensory symptoms i believe is that excellent right? yeah yeah and i thought it was very interesting um good reminder one of the uh one of the papers which is marked as further reading had the quote autonomic involvement in a patient without diabetes but with an acquired neuropathy suggests amyloid until proven otherwise and I thought that was quite a useful take home to just always have it in the back of your mind especially with those autonomic features even though they presented quite late in this case. Yeah I think that's absolutely right and uh, you know clearly there were a number of symptoms which emerged here that uh, uh, were strongly pointing to uh, autonomic dysfunction and then pursuing the amyloid, uh, uh, you know, was difficult. And and I think we have to be prepared to go to the difficult biopsy. And and, and many of our plastic surgeon colleagues will be willing to help with that, uh, because obviously they are sensitive areas, and and there can be morbidity. But it's the right thing to do here. Great. Well, look, two more excellent cases, diverse, uh, good lessons to be learned. Will make us better doctors in uh, in the acute and also in the clinic settings uh, there's lots more cases to look at in this issue and i uh, look forward to uh, another couple of cases with the next issue so thanks so much ruth thanks in you please leave us a rating or a review if you've got any good comments or you think there's ways we can improve things on this or any of our practical neurology podcasts 
If you have the chance, do listen to the other podcasts on this and past issues. They're all available on Spotify, on Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks all very much for listening and see you next time. Thank you.